You're listening to a sermon podcast from Agape Baptist Church, recorded live from our Sunday service. Good morning, church. I'm Daniel. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 18, verse 21 to 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave, his, forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. All right, very good morning, everyone. The Lord bless you. All right, you Sunday, you've got to be a bit more energetic than that. All right, the Lord bless you. Wonderful. Uh, blessed Youth Sunday as well. Uh, you know, in our church, Youth uh, Sunday happens almost every year. Uh, it started since about 20 years ago or so. So it's become a tradition in our church, and it's become an op- opportunity for the youth to kind of take charge, to serve, to exercise faith, and to love the church. So praise God for all these young ones who have risen to the occasion, uh, done doing well to serve this church and to serve the Lord. Now this morning, we are talking about forgiveness. As Christians, uh, forgiveness is a pretty basic thing, right? Uh, Our faith is built on forgiveness, but then when it's our turn to forgive someone else, it's just so hard. So why must we forgive? You know, typically when we answer that question, there's a few reasons that comes to mind. The first uh, 
are the therapeutic reasons, right? Basically, we should forgive for our own sake, for our own well-being. So for example, the power argument says that when we don't forgive someone, we give them power over our lives. So forgiveness is breaking their power over you. And the healing argument, right, says this very familiar quote, uh, it's like, unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. I don't know if you've heard that before, right? Quite familiar. And so forgiveness is about finding healing, right? Putting away the poison, finding healing. So that's the therapeutic reasons. Then there's also communal reasons, right? Basically, we should forgive for the sake of the larger community, right? For example, the harmony argument says forgiveness is about keeping peace. It's about helping us all to just get along without fighting or tension. The humility argument says nobody's perfect. Right? They wrong you, you wrong somebody else. Forgiveness is just about being human. Right? We humbly admit that we all have flaws. Then finally, there are the religious reasons. Right? The obedience argument says forgiveness is the right thing to do. It's what God commands us to do, so you must do it. And if you don't do it, then there's punishment. Right? The punishment argument is there. Unforgiveness is a sin. If you don't forgive, God's not going to forgive you too. So you better forgive. So there are all these reasons that we have to forgive, and yet we still struggle to forgive. Why is that? I think it's because on the other side, there's the issue of justice. Why should I forgive? He deserves my hatred. Why should I forgive? She deserves it. She deserves to be discriminated against, to be excluded. My anger is justified. It's right that I hold on to it. My wrath is deserved. It's right that he or she should feel my anger. To forgive means forfeiting what I'm due. To forgive means letting that person get away with it. To forgive means giving that person the permission to repeat that wrong. And so to forgive is injustice. Now, this is the thinking that undergirds cancel culture. In 2019, uh, J.K. Rowling, the author of the Harry Potter series, she posted on Twitter uh, on why a man who identifies as a woman is not in fact a woman. She was quickly labeled transphobic and she was canceled. Now, what that means, right, what being canceled means for her is that there was a call to boycott her books. Publishers were threatened. They were told that they better stop paying her royalty. Her friends and her fans turned against her. Fellow celebrities condemned her. And when none of these things succeeded in making J.K. Rowling take back her, her statements, people began sending her death threats. Now, this is just a more extreme example of what cancel culture is about. Right? Those who are in favor of cancel culture, they'll say that it's about holding people accountable. It's about educating people towards a more inclusive society. Ultimately, cancel culture is about justice. Then there's another group of people who look at cancel culture and they say that, no, you know what, it's about censorship. It's about control. It's about shaming people towards a more divided society. And ultimately, it's about revenge, not justice. So that's cancel culture. That's the society we live in. But how about us as Christians? What, how should we think about forgiveness? And how should we think about the relationship between forgiveness and justice? 
Now, when we look to the Bible for answers, there is one passage on forgiveness that really stands out, right? This is the passage that Daniel uh, read for us so excellently earlier on. And this is Jesus's uh, big parable on forgiveness. So this parable is from Matthew chapter 18, and it gives us perspective on the matter of forgiveness and the relationship between forgiveness and justice. So as we unpack the passage, we're going to be looking at uh, the big question, the big debt, and finally, the big scandal. And as we go through this passage, my prayer is that God would shape our hearts so that we honor Him and we honor one another in this important matter of forgiveness. So let's begin first with the big question. So if you look at my, Matthew chapter 18, right before the big parable, Jesus gives instructions on what to do if a fellow Christian sins against you. In verses 15 to 17, Jesus gives a list of steps when dealing with such offenses. Now to summarize, right, basically, number one, you should confront the offender. Now if that doesn't work, you bring two, two other people with you and you again go and confront the offender. If that still doesn't work, you get the whole church, and as one community, you confront the offender. Now, if after all these rounds, the offender still refuses to repent, then Jesus says it is time to remove the offender from the church altogether. Now, this sounds quite intense, and it sounds also really troublesome, right? Just so many steps. Uh, to deal with someone who's offended against you. But we must realize that the purpose, the point of each step is to give as many opportunities as possible for the offender to repent, and more importantly, for the offender to be reconciled to us and to God. Now, as the disciples listened to this, they had a concern, right? They wondered, you know, what if people abuse this system? Or what if they just keep offending and then repenting, offending, and then repenting, right? What if this system enables wicked people to continue their wickedness? And so Peter asked Jesus this question, Lord, how often, how many times will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now, according to Jewish tradition, it is acceptable to forgive someone up to three times. Right? So it means that if the person wrongs you a fourth time, you no longer are obligated to forgive them. So by saying seven times, according to cultural standards, Peter was actually being very, very generous. But the big question is not about how many times we are to forgive, whether three times or seven times. The big question is this, how far do we take forgiveness? How much is too much? And this is the same question that we're dealing with even today, right? How far do we take forgiveness? How much is too much, right? How far until people start taking advantage of that forgiveness? How much until people start taking it for granted? And that's the question, isn't it? You know, when I was growing up, there was this saying that went, uh, fool me once, shame on me. Sorry, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Right? So the idea is that whether we forgive someone or not, the most important thing is that you don't be wronged by the same person in the same way. And of course, there's, there's some wisdom in that line of thinking, but today that line of thinking has been taken to an extreme 
and we see that in cancel culture. Evan Gertzman, in his article for Forbes, titled, What is Cancel Culture? He explains cancel culture in this way. First and foremost, cancel culture is punitive. It punishes, right? Transgressions must be punished no matter how long ago they occurred. Cancel culture is also unforgiving. Cancel culture is also a belief that you are no better than your worst moment. So cancel culture's answer to the big question is, we don't forgive, period. Forgiving even one time is one time too many. We punish. We make sure we punish wrongdoers to the point that they never try to do such a thing ever again. And we make an example of them so that no one else would dare do the same thing. Now this sounds really intense and we wonder, is this really justice or is this something else? Now, it's a little confusing, and then our confusion grows when we hear Jesus' answer, his answer, to the big question. And Jesus says, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, Peter thought he was being generous in forgiving up to seven times, but Jesus takes it to a whole new level. 77 times. Other translations put it 70 times seven times. Now, what is Jesus saying? Jesus is calling for radical forgiveness. Now, again, it's not about the number, right? Jesus gives us such a ridiculously high number that it's impossible to keep track. And Jesus is saying, don't even bother keeping count. Simply keep forgiving. As long as it is up to you, you forgive. Wow. That is radical forgiveness. But then we think to ourselves, Jesus, how can you say something like that? Number one, it's not wise, right? What if someone's being abused, right? Are they to keep forgiving their abusers? And number two, that's not helpful. Such radical forgiveness is not going to uphold justice, not in our families, not in our communities, not even in our churches. Number three, such radical forgiveness is not practical. Who can keep forgiving like that? Who can stand to be wronged over and over and over again? And one day, if this guy keeps forgiving again and again, that guy is going to explode and he's going to commit an even greater crime. So not wise, it's not helpful, it's not practical. And I think even the disciples had similar concerns about this radical forgiveness. And Jesus knows this, and so he gives us this parable. That brings us to part two, the big debt. Jesus begins his parable by saying this, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servant. Now, the first thing Jesus does is that he draws a line between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdoms of this world. And Jesus is saying, this is how things work in my kingdom, and it's different from the way things work in the world. So there's a difference, and to show this difference, Jesus tells a story of a king who decides to settle accounts with his servants. In particular, there's this one servant who owed the king 10,000 talents. Now, as many of you already know, talents is not about giftings or skills, whether you can sing or dance or whatever. At that time, a talent was about a financial quantity. 
Right? So today there's some debate about how much exactly a talent would be worth, but the more conservative estimate is about a year's wages for an average worker. So today, an average worker would earn maybe $40,000 a year. Right? So at the very least, it could be a lot more, but at the very least, one talent today would be worth maybe around $40,000. And the king owed the, uh, sorry, the servant owed the king 10,000 talents. So you do the math, right? 10,000 times $40,000. That's a lot of zeros, right? But 10,000 talents would be equivalent to about $400 million today. And this is the more est uh, conservative estimate. Now, I have no idea why the servant owes the king that much, right? Uh, but what's clear is that there is no way this servant is going to pay back his debt. And so the king says to him, I'm going to sue you for every last penny. All your possessions, right, including your wife and your children. Right? At that time, your wife and children were considered financial assets. All your possessions will be liquidated. And let's see how much I'll be able to collect on your debt. So what does the servant do? Jesus says, so the servant fell on his knees imploring the king, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. The servant falls on his knees and begs the king, give me more time. I'll get you your money. I'll pay you everything. I will pay you everything. Now, what is this servant talking about? Bro, it's like $400 million. You're never going to repay it. The servant should have just begged for mercy. But instead, the servant asks for a time extension. And the sense we get is that this servant honestly thinks he can do it. He really believes he can clear his debt. Now, I don't know if the servant is just not aware of how big a debt he owes or whether he's overestimating his own ability to repay, I think it's probably a bit uh, of both, but there's a sense of self-delusion. The servant honestly believes he can repay his impossible debt. And there's something here for us to ponder about when it comes to the big debt, and it's this. Are you aware, like really, truly aware of the debt that you owe? Do you understand how big your debt is? Your offenses against others, against your parents, your friends, your teachers, your siblings, and so on. And then there are those offenses that are against God. Are you aware of how big a debt you owe? And do you think you can repay? Are you like this servant? Are you overestimating your own ability to repay this massive debt? Or are you aware that you could actually never manage such a large debt? But this is what we are like, right? Everyone else's offenses are so big. They have to pay that big debt. But we excuse our own faults. We justify ourselves. We give ourselves a discount on the debt that we owe others. And this is why Jesus warns us not to become so obsessed with the speck, that dot in someone else's eyes, that we miss out on that log that is bulging out of our own eye. We see our faults as small, but their faults as big. 
So our mistakes, our misunderstandings, our faults, our innocent mistakes, we, we just need some time and we'll make things right, but their mistakes are intentional. Their faults are inexcusable. They should be punished. They don't deserve time. They should be punished immediately. Now that gives us also a glimpse into how cancel culture thinks. My sins are not as bad as yours. I deserve forgiveness, but you don't. I can do better, but you can't. But there is this big debt that hangs over every one of us. Are you aware of it? And more importantly, can you repay? We come to the last part of the parable, the big scandal. The servant owes the king a big debt, 10,000 talents, $400 million. The king is about to bankrupt him of everything, including his family. The servant is on his knees, begging quite absurdly to be given more time so that he can repay everything. And this is where the parable really takes off. All right, in three parts, we will see the big scandal unfolding. Part one, we have grace offered. The king sees the servant on his knees begging for more time. The king hears the servant's absurd claim that he will repay everything. And then verse 27 tells us that the king has pity on this servant. The king is moved. His heart goes out to this wretched servant. The king feels for the servant and for the situation that the servant is in, even though it's the servant's fault. It's the servant who put himself in that situation. And so verse 27 says, the king released the servant. He forgave him the debt. Right? Those are two big words, released and forgave. The king let the servant off the hook. No more consequences, no more punishments. The king canceled the big debt and absorbed the loss. And he made the servant a free man. And that servant's relationship with the king is restored. Timothy Keller, in his excellent book, Forgive, Why Should I and How Can I? He looks at the way this king forgives this servant. And Keller describes uh, forgiveness in this way. To forgive then is first to name the trespass truthfully as wrong and punishable rather than merely excusing it. Second, it is to identify with the perpetrator as a fellow sinner rather than thinking how different from you he or she is. It is to will their good. Third, it is to release the wrongdoer from liability by absorbing the debt oneself rather than seeking revenge and paying them back. Finally, it is to aim for reconciliation rather than breaking off the relationship forever. If you omit, if you miss out on any one of these four actions, you are not engaging in real forgiveness. Now, the king is very clear that the servant is in the wrong. The king doesn't excuse anything or try to explain it away, but the king also identifies with the servant. His heart goes out to him. He's moved by pity. He empathizes with the situation that the servant is facing. Then the king absorbs the debt and releases the servant from all responsibility with regards to the debt. He lets and sets the servant go free. Now finally, the king reconciles with this servant. He doesn't fire him. Instead, he restores him from prison into the palace. Now people, this is what forgiveness looks like. 
and you realize that it is entirely by grace. The servant doesn't deserve it, but it is within the king's right to extend it. And that's what the king does in his compassion. Then comes part two of the big scandal, which is grace, <clears throat> grace abused. The servant is released from his debt and he goes and he finds another servant who owes him money. And the first servant chokes the second servant, strangles him, and he demands that the debt be paid immediately. Now, how much is he owed? We are told 100 denarii. Now, today, 100 denarii would be around maybe $10,000. It's not a small amount, but compared to $400 million, 10,000 is a simple amount. And for that amount, the servant is strangling and abusing his fellow servant. So the second servant falls on his knees and he begs, have patience with me and I will pay you. This is almost the exact same thing that the first servant did before the king. He got on his knees, he begged, and he promised to repay. But unlike the king, the first servant feels no pity. His heart is not moved. Now you think about it, actually it should be easier for him to identify with a fellow servant who is also in debt. But for some reason he doesn't. And this servant seems to think that he is the king, not just a servant. He believes that he has the right to judge the other servant. So instead of releasing the servant and forgiving the debt, he throws the poor man into prison, never to be released until the debt is paid in full. Now this is precisely the kind of thing that cancel culture wants to address. You show grace, you extend forgiveness, but the person doesn't learn, the perpetrator doesn't learn. If you want someone to learn to change, you've gotta make them suffer the consequences of their wrongdoings. And this is what you get when you replace justice with forgiveness. And when you substitute severity with leniency, you empower the wickedness of a wicked man. And so this part of the parable seems to support cancel culture. It seems to teach us that we shouldn't forgive, that forgiveness and justice are polar opposites, that every debt should be paid and every wrongdoer should be thrown into prison. But having said all that, this second part actually gives us a visual demonstration of cancel culture. There are two servants, but one servant thinks he's the king. He takes matters into his own hands. This servant is oblivious to the magnitude of his own debt to the king. This servant seems to genuinely believe that his own debt is no big deal. He can repay. And so he sees the speck in his fellow servant's eye, but he's blind to the log that is bulging out of his own. And even though the king has shown him mercy, he treats his fellow servant with full severity. Now, this is what is at the heart of cancel culture. It's a belief that I am the king. It's my right to judge everyone else. There's a blindness to the magnitude of your own sins. There's an over-magnification of other people's sins. And there's an ignorance to the mercy that others have shown you and ultimately the mercy that God has shown you. Because if God were to mark our transgressions, who among us could stand? But cancel culture is blind to all of that. In the name of justice, cancel culture pursues vengeance 
against those that refuse to forgive no matter how small the offense. But Jesus is showing us a better way. We come to part three of the big scandal, and this is grace revoked. The other servants who witness the violent behavior of the first servant, they are horrified. They go to the king and they report what had happened, they report this servant. And this is what happens. Then the master, the king, summoned the first servant and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. The king is furious. Now, why is he so angry? It's got nothing to do with him, right? It's, a, it's an issue between two servants. What's the big deal? Now, the reason is that the servant did not treasure the king's mercy. The servant did not recognize just how glorious the king's forgiveness is. And by behaving the way he did, the servant made the king look like a fool for showing him compassion. The king had allowed his heart to go out to the servant, but this servant had publicly trampled all over it. And so the name, the reputation, the glory, the majesty of the king has been dishonored. And this is serious. And that's why the king says to the servant, you wicked servant, you ungrateful wretch. And in anger, the king throws the servant into jail until the debt is repaid. Then Jesus delivers the punchline to this big scandal. This is the big point of this parable. Jesus says, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the answer that Jesus finally gives. Now imagine how Peter feels. Peter was the one who asked Jesus that question about forgiveness because Peter was concerned that people might take advantage of forgiveness. And Jesus' reply to him is basically, Peter, you mind your own business. How other people respond to forgiveness, whether they change or not, that's not your problem. So stop being so calculative. Stop trying to determine who is worthy of your forgiveness and who is not. Peter, who are you to determine that? Are you the king? No, Peter, you're just a fellow servant like everyone else. And Peter, Jesus says, Jesus reminds him, Peter, there is a king. There is a king. And he's merciful. But don't you dare dishonor his mercy. Don't you dare dishonor his grace. Hasn't he been kind and patient with you? Then are you going to risk his anger by insisting on your own version of justice? And Jesus finally says, Peter, are you the wicked servant? Peter, will you repay mercy with vengeance? Peter, will you anger the king? Peter, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart, my heavenly father will not forgive you as well. 
Now imagine how Peter feels as he hears this. Peter wanted to know how to deal with bad people, but now Peter worries that he himself might be a bad person. Peter wanted to know the limits to forgiveness, but now Peter realizes that it is forgiveness itself that limits the wrath of God. Peter was concerned with the sinful nature of other people's hearts, but now Peter is shocked to see the sinful nature of his own heart. Because Jesus isn't just saying, you know, when somebody says sorry, you tell them I forgive you. Jesus is saying, whether or not the person apologizes, no matter how great the crime done against you, regardless of whether that person will change for the better or not, you, from the bottom of your heart, you forgive. Not just with words, not just outwardly pretending to be okay with that person, but sincerely, genuinely acknowledge that he's wronged you, identify with him, release him from that debt, and seek reconciliation. People, we are like Peter, aren't we? We come to Jesus with our big question. We want to know how we should deal with those other people. But the truth is, we all have that cancel culture spirit in us. We think we are the king. We believe it's our right to judge others, to punish them. We minimize our own debt, but we magnify the debts that are owed to us. And though we experience mercy, we are unwilling to extend it to others. And Jesus' command that we must forgive our brothers from our hearts is shocking because some of us have been really, really badly hurt. Some of us have been seriously scarred. Some of our lives have been affected because of what someone did or what someone said to us. There is serious damage that we've experienced. And maybe, you know, it's taking all your effort just to ignore those people who have hurt you. It's taking all your energy just to stay away from them, not to think about them, just to try and forget those things like they never happened. But here Jesus is saying, no, you face those things. You acknowledge them. And you identify even with those who have wronged you. And you release them. You forgive them from your heart. And it's impossible, isn't it? There's nothing in us that could do such a thing. But here's the good news. Jesus is not just the lawgiver commanding us to forgive. Jesus is the Savior. And he's not just a Savior. Jesus is God's beloved Savior. You know, when Jesus began his ministry and he was baptized, the Spirit descended upon Jesus visibly like a dove. And God the Father spoke audibly in the presence of all the people. And what did God say? God said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then as Jesus came towards the end of his ministry, he brought his three disciples, his close disciples with him, Peter, James, and John. He brought them up a mountain. And on that mountain, the three disciples caught a glimpse of Jesus in his glory. And once again, God the Father speaks audibly in the presence of these three men. And what does God say? God says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Two times, Jesus is exalted. 
And two times the father declares how much he loves his precious son. But then comes a third time. A third time Jesus is exalted, he's lifted high on a cross. But this time, the voice of the father is painfully absent. And it's like, why? God, isn't Jesus your beloved son? Is Jesus no longer well-pleasing to you? And in some sense, yes. Because at that moment, every debt was placed on Jesus. The 10,000 talents of every man, woman, and child from ages past into the ages to come, Jesus became that debt so that we might be released. You know, God didn't simply say, I forgive you and just cancel our debts. It took the cross. And at the cross, God didn't say a thing as he canceled his beloved son, the son who himself became our debt. People, here's the big scandal. God didn't just forgive us from the heart. God paid our debt with his very beloved heart. His beloved son for us. His beloved heart for our 10,000 talents. And because God gave us his very heart, we have been set free. Our debt is paid. Our standing with God is restored. And we are reconciled not as sinners to a holy holy God, not even as servants to a mighty king, but as children to the God of grace. Now, if you get that big scandal, how could you not want to forgive? It won't be easy. It won't come immediately. But how could you write off somebody and cancel them from your life and from your heart? If God did not even withhold his very heart from us, how could we withhold our hearts from others and ultimately from our king? He has radically forgiven us. Let us honor him by radically forgiving one another. Let's come before the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we remember Peter and we remember how he saw you in glory, saw your son in glory on that mountain. We remember how he asked, even in this parable, that big question. And Lord, he knew how much, how dear Jesus is to you. And then he saw Jesus dying on that cross. He saw Jesus becoming our debt. He saw Jesus getting cancelled in our place. And then as Peter thinks about these things, he writes in 1 Peter 2 that when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Father, today we want to ask for that healing, Lord. 
I pray that you would heal our wounds this morning. Lord, the unforgiveness in our hearts that wounds us, that wounds our relationship with others, that wounds our relationship with you, oh God, bring healing. Lord, the deep hurts, the deep wounds of disappointment and betrayal, the wounds that others have inflicted upon us, whether through their words, their attitudes, their behavior, their abusive actions towards us. By the wounds of Jesus, let there be healings this morning, God. Lord, we pray especially for the youth in our midst. And Holy God, we ask that you reveal Jesus to them. Holy Spirit, reveal His authority, reveal His grace, reveal His holiness and His mercy. Teach these young ones to fear you and to love your son. And Father, as they get older and they encounter more offenses, more conflicts, more hurts, more sorrows, let the wounds of the beloved son bring healing. Let the wound of the beloved son be their refuge. And Lord, would you save them and spare them from the depths of rage and bitterness and unforgiveness, Lord. Lord, we pray ultimately that you save them from incurring your wrath as is deserved, Lord, for those who dishonor the sacrifice of your beloved Son. Have mercy, O God, on us. Lord, remind us of Jesus. Teach us to celebrate the cross. And through that, let there be forgiveness that abounds in your body, the body of Christ, and even beyond the body of Christ. We bless you, Lord. Thank you for listening to this sermon podcast. You can find more of our sermons online on our website at www.agape.org.sg.